Hey everyone, welcome to an event for life with Brad Cox and Shane Buzzer. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. An event for life is the podcast where we take you on a journey through eventful lives of inspirational event industry leaders from around the world. That's right. We'll be sharing their stories, impact and insight into the complex world of events. So if you like these stories, don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your mates. This is an event for life. Good afternoon, Buzz. How are you, mate? I'm very well. How are you doing, Brad? Yeah, I'm all right because you've just handed me a beer and it's Friday afternoon and uh, we're still recording. It's fantastic. Exactly. I mean, you were a bit, you know, apprehensive about it, but aren't you glad you did? I'm yeah. glad now because it tastes fantastic. So I'm, I'm off mountain biking with my mates this weekend and uh, four days down in uh, Tasmania and where I think I think there'll be a fair bit of drinking going on. So I was trying to be good and well-behaved, but uh, you've convinced me as usual. So, uh, no, it's always good. So good way to celebrate the end of another week. It sure is. And uh, we were talking before this recording about when we chatted with Luke and about the number of people to put on some of the major events. It's just huge. Unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. And especially the last few years, did the challenge it's, that we've had. Yeah, trying to find good people, resourceful people. And at the end of the day, you know, events are a, a people business. Mm. Um, you know, it takes a lot of people to put events on. It takes a lot of people to organise them. And uh, we rely on teams and teams and teams. And today's guest is very, very much in that uh, in that field and has spent most of his time down there. So uh, it'll be an interesting conversation about where we go. But uh, even for you, mate, I know, you, you know, you've been going up and down and events everywhere. And we're just talking about... You know, your operations of sort of running all over town and uh, you rely on a lot of people. Yeah, the crew are working away as we speak, loading the truck. Um, you know, we've got people coming and going quite a bit now, which is great. That was yeah. the whole purpose of moving into this space. And uh, uh, I worked with some beautiful Argentinians in Sydney not long ago and I would have them back in a heartbeat. Okay, so I've heard a rumour there, uh, their little trip around Australia is starting to circumnavigate itself <laughs> down to Melbourne and Blue Event Productions for the summer. Let's hope so. Fingers yeah, crossed. Nice. Well, let's get into it. Today's guest um, is the owner of two of... The most successful companies in the event industry. Um, he has a love uh, of people um, he deli- who deliver events and focuses on optimising their experience. From an original passion of sport and sporting events uh, in the regional towns of Victoria, Australia, he has taken his companies global while staying very true to his roots. Uh, would you please welcome the founder of Rostify and Spark Event Group, Shannon Gove. Welcome, Shan. Thanks, boys. Yeah, Friday afternoon. Happy to be with you. Um, yeah, looking yeah. forward to it. Looking forward to a chat. And look, let's not lie, you've got a beer in your hand too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. look at him go. Unfortunately, yeah. it's got a Geelong cat stubby say, holder, which total, is not going down well. If total it Geelong Nuffy with his uh, stubby holder over there. Any but... questions will be about the premiership. Have we got a section on that for the cats? No, I'll no, just, I'll just cross it out. Yeah. 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 I think our, uh, our international guests, of, uh, uh, listeners, are, are sick of uh, us talking about AFL footy, but it's an important yeah. part of our culture yeah. and our life. So, uh, unfortunately, they're stuck with it. So, all good. good. But uh, if they are listening, you can leave Geelong alone. <laughs> well, you are from Geelong and, you know, on the Ballerine Peninsula in Victoria. Yep. Um, it's where you grew up and now reside with your young family. Um, you've, come yep. al- you've come a long way around the world to now called Geelong Home. And what do you love about it there and what was growing up like for you? <laughs> yeah, um, Geelong boy, born and bred. Uh, and as well with my um, business partner, Bennett, my cousin, who's a couple of years older than me. So um, look, like any Aussie young kids playing sport, um, down the, by the river down here. Um, and then, yeah, uh, through university, lived in Melbourne for 10 years, 11 years. And then once we had uh, our first child, Evie, our daughter, um, four or five years ago now, we moved back to Geelong and, and really happy to be back home and, and close to family. Still travel up to Melbourne occasionally for work, but um, this is certainly home now and uh, we're happy to be here. Nice. I actually didn't realise Bennett was your cousin. 
There you go. We were talking about the business side of things. but We don't look uh, look very similar, Brad, so uh, I don't blame you. No, Um, that's all right. All good. Hey, sports played a major part in your life, uh, including university studies where you studied sport management. What are some of your earliest sporting memories and sports you loved growing up uh, that led to you wanting to initially pursue a career in sport? Yeah. um, Well, even before uni, what I loved doing was, uh, well, obviously, like, any Aussie young kid loved the Aussie, Aussie rules and, and playing and wanting to work in that in sports. I don't think you really have a clear idea what you want to do when you finish school, high school. And so it was just something in sport. But what I also loved doing was we, we volunteered a bit when we were at school um, to help Sudanese kids um, and, and uh, lecture them and teaching them English as kids. And, uh, and so my stupid idea at the time was going, well, I'm going to go set up AFL in Africa. And that was the reason why I got into sports management, thinking that's where I'm going to go. Um, and that's why we sort of got into sort of half what we're doing, just the love of working with people, but also the love of working in sport. And that sort of helped to drive the very beginning of, of how we started. And when when did things change, I guess, in terms of, you know, that's a very noble pursuit. And uh, I mean, from my side, it would have been amazing to see. And, but, and ambitious. And, yeah. and I say that in a positive way, Shannon, like that, that, that's so ambitious at a young age to want to go down that path. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it, it hasn't sort of gone down that path in some ways and you've ended up in event land, which we'll talk about in a second, but at what point did you sort of go, Oh geez, maybe I've, my, my great, my great idea is, is going to be a little harder to achieve uh, than what I thought. <laughs> um, it was probably, it's an interesting one as a university student studying sports management. It was probably like a stark realization because I, I lived on res, right? And seeing students older than me all studying in sports, all being quite naive about the way that you actually get into sports and events and seeing quite a few students that were three years older than me who had graduated and were then needing to go into nursing or into something else because they needed to find another career path because they couldn't get a job because there's no defined way of getting a job in sport or in, compared to commerce where you can go work for a big four or something where it's pretty, you're pretty fine to get a job. You, you know the direct path where sport is the complete opposite. And so I guess realize pretty quickly, you need to be getting some experience while you're at university because that because for me as a student, I was a pretty poor student because I was so focused on working and volunteering and doing casual casual event shifts all through uni. Um, but I realized that that was so much more critical as in the events and sports world than getting an A-plus on a test realistically. That was a big realization I had pretty early. Oh, I think it's probably testament to a lot of us in this industry too, you know, your hard work first and uh, worry about the study second So, because yeah. we're a lot more practically approached. It's you a just, bit of a trend, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is, absolutely. <laughs> you, you mentioned there sort of starting to do some casual work on events and, and particularly the volunteering segment, but you mainly entered events through operations roles in major sporting events and, and companies such as like IM, IMG, Ironman, Tough Mudder. What were some of your early days, work, you know, from a working point of view in event ops um, in terms of, integration into sport and into the industry yeah um well my good mates now still today tommy mitchell and um ben muldoon um brad king 
uh, early days really with super sprint triathlons, so all the Gatorade tries, that was a very uh, initial start of it all, which was just such a great fun time, right? As an 18, 19, 20-year-old traveling around the country, just getting up early, working hard and, and out in the sunshine, traveling around the country too when you're 19, 20 years old going, oh my God, someone's willing to pay for me to go join this part of this crew. Like that was the early days of how we got started and and then um, and just having fun with that, right? And earning some earning some money to pay for your beers on the weekend, like that was that was it. Um, not taking anything too seriously, just sort of enjoying it and going along for the ride. And then through that, getting in with IMG and Melbourne Marathon was really our first gig, and and that was sort of how Event Workforce got started. Was actually Melbourne Marathon, I think, twenty ten with Benny Muldoon, and realizing, hey, like there's a need for some quality staff here that actually give a shit about the work they're doing and asking them at the time, guys, why don't you have a database of university students studying sports management? And then the guys at IMG and the directors as well being like, that's the last thing we want to do. We don't want a bunch of annoying 18, 19, 20 year olds handling their tax file decks, trying to get their payment info. Are they available or not? We're focused on running events. The last thing we need to be doing is trying to herd all these uni students around the country. And I guess that was a bit of a realization for, for myself to say, well, there's a bit of a gap here between the two. And it wasn't a distinct, we're launching a business tomorrow, but it was just like, a, we literally just brought 30 guys in from Deakin when I was on res, 30 guys in on a tram and said, guys, get to work. You're, in, you're all studying sports and let's get into it. So that's how it all started. Did you see it? Uh could you see that it could become something much bigger than it was at the time or at the at, back then was it just a oh yeah we'll get this started and see how it goes yeah no foresight no the, honestly there's no um grand plan of it all like it if the, the short summary was like we did melbourne marathon we bumped into um tracy wall who was like the security and manager for big day out all the music festivals tracy back then she's like hey can you come down and bring some some of your crew some of the boys down and work at big day out and Soundwave, all those big music festivals bumped into someone else they said oh and they were calling us like manpower or something they had our name <laughs> completely wrong and i didn't really care i was like yeah we'll be there and we're charging like you know a dollar per hour extra on top like we're making nothing right the only thing we were making was because we needed to make sure it would go well, we'd be there ourselves, much the same yeah. as what you guys yeah. have done forever, right? Is to show up and look them in the eye and say, you'll be there and you'll look after it. And so as a uni student, we were earning casual salary, just like all of our mates and friends were that were working with us. And that's how it all sort of began. So there's no people come to us being like, oh, you know, you would have taken a risk, all this sort of thing. There's no risk. It was just having a crack. And if it failed, then it failed. But I guess being young, you had the ability to try that and be able to fail if it didn't work. That's somewhat of a bit of a naivety about, you know, when you're younger yep. and you can take those risks and you don't think about the consequences so much, whereas, you know, we're all oh, a yeah. little bit older and more mature now and we probably do a little bit more, uh, whereas exactly. maybe it'd be better if we didn't. Do you think, um, Shannon, living in Geelong and whilst you guys think it's a big town, it's still a, you know, it's a town, it's a regional town, but do you think that being in that area meant that there was that initial trust. You know, you talked about grabbing 30 guys from the area or from Deakin. You already had that trust because, you know, you knew each other and you, you kind of grew up and lived in that area. And so you established trust initially, which then flows into a broader trust in the, in the, the product that you're creating. Yeah, I think so. But most of our early 
clients were friends of ours or people that we worked alongside. And so you have a beer with them after the Melbourne Marathon, you get to know them, you understand who their family are, whatever. And, and just naturally through that, that's like the, 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 <laughs> the growth of event workforce early days, which is now Spark Event Group. So we'll talk later about that transition. But the growth of the business was a lot of it, honestly, was about working, lifting fences with a lot of these people, setting up scrim at 4am in the morning and getting to know them. And then them saying, oh, by the way, like these guys are great. Your mates are great. Like, can we, can we move on to the next one or the golf or something? And that's how it always worked. So let's talk a little bit about event workforce um, for the listener as well that probably doesn't understand where that, you know, where it started. Well, we now know where it yeah. started from, but it's sort of the, the organic journey of how that grew into not just being physical people available for events, but what you started to create with the academy, uh, your education programs, and really providing a, a very niche offering, but a, a very unique skill set that are allowed to develop people to then be able to provide that to other industry companies in particular. Yeah, it was something, I guess, once we got a bit of traction and perhaps Shane, like the, the next steps, right? Like after call it nine months or 12 months of sort of working this out and going, you know what, like there's lots of need for this. Oh, and oh, hang on, maybe we could do this in New South Wales as well. Like surely it's got to be the same. We spent a lot of time on the cheapest Tiger flights at 5 a.m., Brad, getting you know <laughs> up to Queensland on a Friday morning on a 5 a.m. flying out at 10 p.m. after the Broncos match going to Perth on the Saturday morning to staff or whatever, because we realized like there's a real traction here. And I guess long way around of answering your question, but I guess we were starting to place a lot of staff into these um, events around the country. And then I guess we started thinking more going like, there's a deeper reason why people are here um, than just earning cash basically and if it was just earning cash then we would have been just that manpower or whatever everyone else would have been referring to that just provided arms and legs was sort of our summary and so we just thought about we were we were our market in a sense I was 22 whatever at the time and realizing like there's got to be more than just earning some money like there needs to be a pathway that our students can go through and so we sat together with a lot of them around the country and created programs like we had university reps at each key uni around the country who would recruit students on our behalf they would screen students we'd book um, rooms out at each university and they'd do interviews with them all and then we'd take them on a bit of a journey to um, where they would end up at what we deemed like dream team um, event workforce dream team members uh, in the academy and, and those dream team members got access to all the best opportunities and shifts and internships and these sorts of things. So we really wanted to do more than just get them casual work. We wanted to build them up, I guess, for that placement, which happened um, after university. Um, and I guess that's, we can talk later, perhaps spread around the connection with Spark, because that's where Geordie, by 2015, Geordie Miles um, had a company called Miles Per Hour which was probably placing more of those event contractors and the more sort of somewhat permanent roles. And we never did that very well with event workforce. We're very good at placing, you know, 15, 100 people at the Oz Open or something, but we kind of stopped there. And we did a bit of the education side and interview and skills side, but we never did the further placements very well. And when Geordie were like, we were good friends and we're like, like there's a synergy here and we're, 
we, we believe we're only covering sort of half that journey, you know what I mean? And so how do we help complete that journey for these young people to get into a more of a, a contractor role that people like Brad, yourself and Shane would look at and say, well, hang on, this person could be an area manager or a venue manager for me more than just working casually and, and we wanted to close that loop a bit more. Yeah, I think it's a great initiative too. You know, back then, again, there wasn't a great deal. And one of the hardest things for most people was how do I start in this industry? Like how do I find going from a university degree in, say, event management or sports management or whatever area they were interested in, but getting their foot in a door, whether it be corporate events, public events, you know, community events, it doesn't really matter, but it's just in the industry. And there's always this bit of a mistake about I need to volunteer, which yeah, we'll talk about soon. I was going to say that. And, and look, know, I'm guilty of it too. Yeah. I would always tell people to volunteer. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. I did it. We've all done it. It's awesome. But what you're, what you're saying and, and what you did, Shannon, was actually create a way to make a buck as well yeah. as learn the craft and the process around events. Yeah. I think the big thing we always spoke about was, and I still, um, we can talk later again about sports grade, another company we're involved with now, yep. which again is sort of the digital side, if you will, networking soft skill side for university students um, trying to get into sports, but it was all about taking initiative and you could never take initiative Shane, unless you had been there, done that or seen that before. And so if you were always just a volunteer um, at an aid station, for example, you would never really ask to take too much initiative because you were just a, just a volunteer, I guess, in, in quotation marks, where I think what we really tried to do was, you know, expose these students to opportunities and also because therefore if you make mistakes and you learn and you progress and then you get better from that and you realize hang on this is for me or this isn't for me and i think that's a, such a critical thing for young people is that we were just as happy if we if someone did a shift and realized whoa this is not for me because then at least they've bounced off something yeah. they can bounce them back in the right direction when they're 19 compared to just thinking they're going to do this until they're 26 and needing to waste all this time and so we're really proactive in trying to like let people uncover that for themselves. So give them a broader array of roles and opportunities and let them find out for themselves what they want to do. And then for us to try and help link the right people with the right roles through that process. And how did it evolve from, like, am I right in saying, Shannon, that it was very kind of labor focused initially, um, operational setup, et cetera, and then it evolved from there into some of the more strategic roles, if you will, or or managerial roles? When, when, how did that evolve? Yeah, for sure. So event ops crew was absolutely what we did for the yeah. first two, three years or so. And then more into activation crew. So working for, you know, Combank, Boopa, Boopa Troopers was our big thing back in the day, <laughs> or wearing the blue kit. Uh, there's a few stories around that that's uh, pretty funny. But, um, yeah, it's kind of went ops, activations. Um, and then from there... I guess that's when we did a little bit more of those strategic roles, Shane, but I think that's where always Geordie Miles and um, the company he was building at the same time around 2015, 2016, we were like, I think it's important you got to know what you're good at too. And we're like, Geordie's really good at this stuff. And so we just stayed in our lane of providing casual staff, probably up to a certain level that was below that strategic um, approach, yeah, right. I, would, I think fairly say. And then we just thought well, we need to merge this thing with Geordie and create Spark Event Group is what we did. And was when did Bennett sort of come on through that picture? Was it two of you from the from the outset? I mean, you talk about your experience and sort of going through that from a volunteer and casual labour stuff. But was Bennett heavily involved at the start, or did you tap him on the shoulder at a family function and say, "Mate, I need some help here. You're in." 
you almost hit the nail on the head there, Brad. Actually, the the latter. Um, I I guess we. He's two years older than me, so he'd finish uni, and so he was. He was actually, I think, he was pushing hospital beds, like he was just doing casual work to try and uh, eventually find his next job in sports. And and I was at uni, sort of seeing and working ha- casually and super sprint and these sort of things. And I guess I sort of saw that space. And again, it was never a moment of going, "Oh my God, there's a business here. Let's." dive in it was like a i'm not very good at quite a few other things that bennett's good at as well and his dad i guess being a family thing right his dad my uncle michael is a very senior level accountant and without his, michael's advice on managing money and tracking invoices and getting paid we wouldn't absolutely no way be doing what we're doing like we wouldn't have survived and so therefore it was so valuable for us to have Michael involved early and Bennett as well, sort of playing him. He's always been sort of the operational side and um, he's now sort of CEO of Rostify and that's the role he plays. And I've always been more so on the growth side. And, you know, it's it's funny that if, if Bennett ran the company by himself, it wouldn't be what it is. And if I ran it by myself, it probably would have blown up uh, year one. So it's funny how it's so important, I think, to work with people and, and know what you're know what you're good at and not good at and find people that complement that compared to just working with like-minded people because if you do that then you're all just going to follow the same trend and miss all the things you might be short on yeah absolutely and i think let's park the the spark stuff i, I want to come back to the spark stuff and there's, there's yep. two ways we can go here and, and there's a reason behind it and that's because you do operate two very successful uh businesses and i wanted to sort of touch on rostify first so obviously event workforce has has turned into a spark event group in some ways but yep. rostify now you know forms part of what event for, of workforce was in some ways and certainly an element of it but it's now one of the largest volunteer and staff management portals for events in the world was was Rostify a master plan brewing in the background through the event workforce days or what was the catalyst to develop that offering? Um, very similar to the event workforce stuff. <laughs> very distinct plan and uh, I'll, I'll give you the background. So maybe 2014, 2015, working events with a good mate, Chris Grant. Granny was kind of your, mm. your go-to technical guy on your event site, the, the guy that just solved all the problems. You get one Chris Grant or 10 other people is my simple summary, right? He would do the start line, finish line, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, we probably got to a point where event workforce was growing quite considerably and we just had spreadsheets of people all around the country. We didn't know who they were. We, we weren't giving them the respect that they needed because they were just names on a spreadsheet. Like Great people would be working in Brisbane, for example, or Perth, and they'd miss out on a shift the next weekend because we just didn't know enough about them. Um, because you're doing, we're doing like 1,500 events a year um, at that point in time, all on spreadsheets. And we just were like, Chris, Chris was studying computer engineering at the time and software, and he needed to complete a university project. He was wow. a bit like us in a way that he, uh, he was probably late, late on finishing something or didn't know what he was going to do. And so we were these knucklehead uh, executives at Event Workforce Group. <laughs> Uh, at the time, at and the we age of about twenty-five, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so we felt like this we were conning the entire system by actually signing off on his first uni project, which was building like a reg portal for for staff to register to event workforce. So we came to him with a problem that we needed solved for, like getting out of spreadsheets, sort of trying to formalize that process of recruitment. So we got Chris involved then, uh, and he built the first thing of what Rostify was. 
never with the intention of then Rostify being a platform anyone else can use. And then, Brad, for the next 12 months, we had clients in the events industry, Ironman and cycling and a few others saying, can we use your this system you got going? Like, that looks interesting because we've got the same problem. And we actually said no for 12 months. We said, no, you cannot use this platform because if you do, you're not going to care about the students as much as we do and we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot and the students. And, and I guess after time, we sort of realised, hang on, like, everyone's facing this problem we were facing is there a way that we can help? Because what we care about, I guess, what we uncovered, what we cared about was we just want to help good people do good work and how do we help make that process easy? Um, and then we realized, hey, like maybe we could license this thing and, and probably took us 12 months, but we got there and that's when we sort of started to launch Rostify as a platform. And for our listeners, can you give us a bit of an insight as to what Rostify is now and how it works? Yeah, so I'd say... Very comprehensive um, mass workforce platform. So it covers the end-to-end journey um, from recruitment, screening, training, inductions, scheduling, um, uniform, uh, meal voucher allocation, reward and recognition, reporting, dashboarding, like the, the entire journey you can imagine for an entire, uh, for a major, major workforce program. And so the foundation of where we started with Rostify was certainly major events. I think our third customer was the Super Bowl in America. So wow. we can get to we can get to that because there was there's lots of HR systems right out there and there's lots of systems that your fish and chip shop or cafe would use, but they don't handle what I deem the chaos of mass workforce and volunteer management, right? And that's what we we did. And so we really found a bit of a niche, again, not deliberately, but we realized we had a bit of a unique skill set that we knew it inherently from five years of being there and being in the throes of it to then saying, well, now I've got a platform that can automate all that painful stuff. So we can look someone in the eye and go, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I've been there. How about you use our platform and early days? How about you help us build it too? Give us some insights and we'll, we'll build it, but like, let's work together on this so that we build a great product for the market. And were they real? Were they receptive to that? I mean, you talk about Super Bowl. I mean, straight to the top of the food. I have to ask about Super Bowl. How, how did you get that? And and not in the context of you know what the fuck like like as in literally how did you how did that come about? Yeah, so very similar to Event Workforce in a sense of relationships. So um, Tough Mudder was probably our second or or third customer. Tough Mudder were out in APAC at the time, and we were helping run their volunteer program with Event Workforce with these young idiot guys with high-vis vests on trying to run this volunteer program. and But we did a good job because we'd be there at 4 a.m. and look them in the eye and say we're going to deliver and be there and always sort of show up. And through that, built a really good relationship with a guy called Andy Newman and a, and a lady, Emma Dutch, who ran the volunteers globally for Tough Mudder. And they came out to APAC and they – and sorry, I'll get to Super Bowl, Shane um, – but they were the ones that said, well, hang on, we need to build this global platform for Tough Mudder. There's some other systems out there in the market. They're old. They've got no sort of vision and direction of where they want to go. You guys cover maybe 50, 60%, who knows, of what we want as an end state. If we sign with you, will you do all of these things for us to make our ideal platform for Tough Mudder? Anyway, we, we got that contract 4 a.m. in the morning at a boardroom in Richmond, and they said to us, just don't fuck it up, was the first thing <laughs> they said to us. Um, and then they've got themselves a trip out. They flew out to Australia. We spent a full week in our 
really shitty offices in Richmond. Like they've come a long way to be put in this back room above a supermarket uh, with no air conditioning. And uh, and we spent a week really whiteboarding and planning all these sorts of things. And then we went on a real journey with them. And then Shane, through that connection, the that Andy went on to the Super Bowl and was like, guys, you, you, they were employing, I don't know, eight or nine full-time people at Super Bowl the private, previous year. And now we've done the last seven Super Bowls now in America. They're doing it with sort of one person, maybe one and a half people because of the automation that Rostify offers. So that was how we started with them. Yeah, wow. And what's the process like in setting up essentially a tech company in the event industry? So, okay, Tough Mudder come and you promised the world and you're not allowed to fuck it up. Um, it, to get the resources and to think about building it um, as, a, as non-tech guys, Mm -hmm. how does that journey unfold itself to make sure you can guarantee that to the clients? Oh, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly scary. We had some real hairy moments early, that's for sure. Um, but I guess at the same time, we had, we didn't have heaps of customers and we knew all of our customers because it wasn't like they were just finding us on Google early days. We didn't do marketing until I reckon 2020. Like it took us a long time to properly grow this thing yeah. um and, and so did you need outside investment through that process as well or were you able to self-fund that based on you know continuously continuing the event workforce stuff to be able to fund the development of rostify exactly yeah the event workforce is a really great business and and funded and for a weird two years there we called it event workforce group an event workforce yep. group had the technology and the workforce and then we would go over to America and they'd go, oh, great, we'll get the staff as well. <laughs> <We're> like, oh. <laughs> We're, yeah, flying out from Australia. Up. What are we doing? And so we had to change the whole name and that's how Rostify as a name launched because right. we're like, oh, that was dumb. Uh, so we spent two years of our business completely misbranding the whole thing. Um, but, you know, you live and you learn. Absolutely. One of the things I, I, we're curious and wanted to ask you is given – you know, the development of event, event workforce and the development of Rostify in particular and your background, what is the importance of volunteers in events to you? Oh, yeah, we don't have much time, do we? Um, I can talk about <laughs> this for ages. My most simple summary, and, and Andy Newman, our good friend now from Tough Mudder and Super Bowl and Com Games, he's done it all. Um he summarized it really nicely because we, we actually run a podcast on um, volunteers called the Engage Volunteer. And there so go. good plug. check it out for people wanting to like listen and hear from other major event volunteer specialists, jump on that and listen to Andy's podcast. What's it called again? Give it another one. The Engaged Volunteer. Nice. There you go. Um, we, I haven't done one for a little while, so um, uh, I'm wanting to pick him back up. It was more if you're looking for a studio, we know someone who could know. Yeah, I'm sure a couple of guests on the way through. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, anyway, the point he made was around, you, you could potentially, I mean, no, it's not feasible for you to replace your volunteers with paid staff, but let's say you could, you're still not going to get the heart and soul and the impact that it is because it's a volunteer. And so his big thing was it's the face and the feel and the vibe that you're getting from volunteers because they are volunteers inherently. They bring so much more value to the organization because they are there on their own merit. They're not there like as a, if you go to an English football game or something where you see these stewards who are earning sort of 10 quid an hour or whatever, 
the, the vibe and the feeling and the welcomeness you're going to get from that person versus a volunteer at the Commonwealth Games saying, I'm so happy you're in my town. Come on down. This is where we're going. Yeah, here's a great restaurant. It's just that's the biggest difference in, uh, in my summary of volunteers and why they're important. And um, did you ever have any doubts about whether this would be successful or not? Um, no. I didn't say no. Yeah, excellent. Good answer. Um, I don't know. It's not, it's not, I'm not being silly, but it's kind of like we weren't afraid to, like, we weren't afraid to stuff it up. Or, like, we, I guess the simplest thought I have in my head, it's like all the skills we've gained from being able to grow something from nothing to sort of what it is, you're always sort of comfortable in the fact that even if it does stuff up, You've gained so much more experience than anyone else because you've had to put yourself out there and be accountable to doing all these sort of things. That, and you've also put yourself in different spots to work out what you like and what you don't like. And so I guess we always really believed that it would and we're passionate and driven and kind of the approach of like, well, if anyone's going to do it, we're going to do it. And like we had that belief, I guess, but also at the same time going, you know what, if it all does blow up, then shit, it's been a good, fun experience and we're really proud of it. Um, a big thing I always say is like, I, I want to get to Christmas lunch every year and look back on the year and be like proud of it and, and that you've done sort of everything you can. And I think that's all you can control. Like that's a big sort of thing I, I try and focus on. So Rossify is now a global uh, volunteer program and you've slowly grown that and you, you mentioned Super Bowl before and, and some of those networks and relationships you, you developed and, you know, it's gone on for World Games, London Marathon, Spartan events, you know, charity organisations, community events, you name it, you've, you've, you've really started to diversify the product. But how have you scaled the business to support these events um, and do you see a great deal of similarity across the world in terms of the needs of the volunteers and the workforces that you service? Yeah. Um, well, to your first question about how to be scaled, um, I guess there's a chicken or the egg, right? You, some people might build a really fine business plan and do all this work, uh, go and get the office and do the market scan and whatnot in London, for example, if you're going to go launch them. I guess our approach was, well, my approach was the opposite where I just contacted all of these big London sort of events and sports and everything from Melbourne and worked until, I don't know, 10 or 11 at night for a year or so. My my wife now, girlfriend at the time, Alice, barely saw me because we'd just try and grow the business from Australia and then we'd sign a customer and then we'd go, oh, shit, how are we going <laughs> to deliver this? And then we signed three customers, then we signed five and then we're like, wow, okay, like this is growing. But it was all done out of Australia. Um, wasn't easy, but I guess they knew that when they signed on with us because we had a bit of a different product. And so that's kind of how we started was less process, more go and get them and get some revenue through the door and start learning from it. That was how we started. And then in America, it was pretty much the same. We had some federal government support for our first office, um, part of, um, so we're based in San Fran, all put up by the Australian government to help grow tech businesses overseas that's how we grew into the u.s so that answers does that answer your first party question yeah Brad? absolutely i think you know it's in, we talk to a lot of people that you know are keen to scale their businesses you know it's like okay i'm here in australia which is where we're all based and it's you know you're yeah. very isolated and it's like i want to break america or i want to break canada or i want to break europe or the uk or whatever it might be even southeast asia um you know and we've all had our own journeys in different ways around that but 
it's such a big question mark and, and you guys have successfully done it. And I think that tech space in particular is, is challenging. You know, there's a, it's a big industry with a lot of resources behind it in those larger companies. So to, to take on those juggernauts as a small little business is no easy feat. Yeah, it's a really interesting one though. Now that we've gone, I think we're in 26 countries now, like a lot of different places. Australia is one of the hardest. It truly is. Why is that? It's crazy. It people, I don't know what it is. If it's tall poppy syndrome or something, not against us necessarily, more just about um, it's really tricky to sign a deal in Australia. And maybe it's because I'm not sure if it's our mindsets. Um, for example, in America, you cold call someone or reach out to them. They'll give you, they'll give you five minutes. Yeah. Pitch to me, like, give it to me. Cool. All right. That's interesting. All right. Great. I'll bring my executives in. What are we talking? And then they'll, they'll smash you in negotiations and try and get your costs down. But they're open to a conversation. Australia, I've found that the market and anyone that you would speak to that's grown a business overseas has finds Australia is a very tricky market to start in because it's like, if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. That's a simple summary. I love it. No, I've silenced your buzz. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I've hardly said a word. I'm genuinely fascinated by all this. And especially, I mean, you, you said, Shannon, that you, you didn't do any marketing. And, and I do yeah. believe that. But yeah. do you feel that there was organic marketing in the context of these large events that you were doing, which surely came up in conversation or was a reference point at, at some stage, which is how you were able to grow internationally? Because it's not that easy, let's be honest. Is it, for any Aussie company to, to you know branch out, it doesn't just happen, but you were able to do that and had runs on the, some big runs on the board. So that would have helped, right? Um, I could name you our first 50 customers, all of which, if we didn't know them, someone knew them or someone introduced yeah. us or something. Uh, genuinely, if you're not doing that, you it's so hard. It's so hard just to put something out because you have to, a big belief of ours, it's like, of, of mine personally, is like, you don't have the the right to feel like anyone owes you anything. Even still today in the, the clients that we work with around the world, you have to be so grateful for the opportunity just to pitch something to somebody. And so it's like even, yeah, it's, I think it's just a really big attitude thing about going like, you got to like be a pit bull. Like if you get an opportunity, you're not going to miss it. Do everything to sign that, especially if you break into a new market early. You should do the first five ones for free. You know, that's easier said than done. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Software, it's probably easier. It is. It is easier. But we actually ne we never did free necessarily, but we're always you know we did whatever we needed to do to get the deal done early, so that you because you you are nothing if no one's heard of you. Why would they trust you? And trust is so important. And so as soon as you get a Super Bowl on your radar, people go, oh, well, if they believe you, then surely we can. And we did the same in London and all these other places where you signed London Marathon was one of our first in London. That's probably my most proud deal I ever signed because it took so long, like probably nine months to build the trust. I would have had, I don't know, 30 calls with them late at night across nine months in order to sign that. But did enough to then for them to trust me to then work with them. And that's what I really look back on is going like the effort in, is required in order to, for someone to trust you. Cause I've, I've seen a lot of other businesses get frustrated and sort of throw the toys out of the cot sometimes yeah. being like, what the hell? Like I got this great thing, a great product. And it might be the best freaking product in the market. It doesn't matter if they don't 
know who you are or if they can trust you because that's the biggest thing when you're trying to break into a new market. 100%. Um, going back to your five-minute pitch stuff, I think that's interesting because we, we do a lot of pitching in this industry and you're pitching your services and stuff. If you've got five minutes before you get onto the 30 calls that come later, yep. how do you approach that little window to make sure you leave a lasting impression and get across your message so that you can have those later calls? Yeah. Um, my one bit of advice is sort of understanding who you're presenting to and what they want out of it. Uh, what I see all the time is people have a generic pitch deck or something and they try and roll that out to the CTO and then the CEO and the head of ops, for example. All three different people want three different things. That's almost my number one thing you have to do all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. And what do you think is the most overlooked or underrated aspects for events in their engagement and management of their volunteer people and workforces? It's still not great in the mass participation space um, is a pretty blunt call. Is it Because so many mass participation events are, if we're focused on that as a vertical or industry, are still reliant upon funding from year to year or entries from event to event. It's so hard for them to invest for the future and so without that ability to invest for the future, that they're, they're incapable of making decisions for the future. And so I, I won't name them, but in Australia, I could list you some pretty reputable names in the mass participation industry. They literally call us every single year with a new volunteer coordinator, a new head of work. Yeah, right. Every single year, I could show you in this area. I laugh every time I sort of see them coming through because I'm like, guys, like, well, you're wasting your time. Had we been working together for five years, they're treating their program like the new volunteers every time, basically. They're like, oh, they'll turn up and then hopefully they'll come back next year. Get rid of their, their paid, I don't know, very low salary to a, a junior level volunteer coordinator. That person moves on next year. They start from scratch again. And every time it's the same. And then they keep complaining about why their volunteers don't come back. It's just there's... But I also understand that, that it's hard to invest for the long term when... Uh, you may not have the financial stability in order to do that. But all I can say is that the best ones, even small or medium ones that have that foresight are the ones that do that and they create a central and engaged volunteer program that incentivizes volunteers to come back, creates a community of volunteers that want to connect to that opportunity. And I think that's a, that's a difference. It's like if you if you want this to be successful in five years, it's almost like why are you doing it in the first place if you don't plan on being successful in five years? But then I also understand that financial means sometimes means it's impossible, and that's just that's just life. Did you ever contribute um, with your clients into the the treatment of volunteers? And by that I mean the, the environments that they're in, how they're treated, whether they're fed or they're given um, some drinks on arrival, or a pack, or, or a gift, or whatever it might be. You don't have to give them the world, of course. But were you ever part of that process with some of your clients in in management of that process? Um. Yes, but maybe I'll give it a different example is when early days of event workforce, we'd have all these events come to us in music festivals saying, oh, yeah, we'll get them all as volunteers. Yeah, don't worry. They're, yeah, they'll be moving some fences and they're going to be setting up some stages, whatever. And probably early days of event workforce are like, oh, great experience. Yeah, get, you know, get a free ticket at the end of it. And it probably took us, I don't know, six months, 12 months. We're like, hang on. 
like this isn't just didn't feel right i don't think the rules were necessarily around then but we're like hang on they're not paying these people to do this job and so we made quite not strict but we made some rules of engagement that if you wanted to get students down to site this is what it needed to be and there's a very clear classification of what was volunteer and what was paid and we didn't err from that we we're quite firm on that and then as soon as we could moving to the award rates and things that came into it to ensure it was just all compliance and the students were being looked after because it's yeah and maybe it's a generalization but in the music and festival industry it was always quite um edgy sometimes i suppose is the right summary and it it got a bit um we just needed to make sure we looked after students because we were the ones getting them in there so we needed to do that it's it's funny you say that because one of the reasons i asked that is because years and years ago i used to volunteer for the falls festival each year they treated the volunteers exceptionally well i loved that experience year on year and so one of the in the back of my mind when i asked that question i i I think of falls festival and how great they treated people and although the volley so i wondered if you know you guys had a a part of that or or contributed to that, so it's kind of funny hearing you say that when yeah falls were phenomenal. Oh, of course, and any industry you're going to find exceptional ones and yeah. and different ones, and and also I'm talking about ten years ago as well, I suppose. But um, it's um yeah, there's it's across the board. You'll find the same. I Is think. there a general uh, rule of events still that take advantage of volunteers like without naming names obviously but it's like is that still an issue um from what you guys see and what you do no i don't think so because especially post-covid if a, a rough rule of thumb is that they're seeing 30 percent reduction in volunteer applications yep. anyway in the first place you don't have the option but to treat them like in my my simple summary is that you should be treating your volunteers like you're treating your full-time employees. 100%. Yeah. And, and especially for young people, like we know it from the event workforce days. Everyone's crying out saying, oh, I want more young volunteers. They're not, they're unreliable. They're not showing up. We completely disagree. Like you have to put it on a silver platter for young people. It's a different demographic. It's a different sales pitch. You need to treat them differently to your generic volunteers who just might be there for the heart and soul or, or love your event. If you want to bring young people in, you need to treat them particularly well, align with why they're there in the first place. Are they, do they need a hundred hours for a certificate? Are they trying to do, um, you know, communications? Great. Let's get them into a role that's going to be relevant to that. And so, long way around of answering brad to be like if you're going to treat your volunteers like crap they're not going to come back and it's as simple as that 100 percent. and we you know we're a people-based business as we said at the start you yep. touched on um the volunteer coordinators or the volunteer manager position that you know that sort of floats in and out of these uh, events and particularly the mass participation ones i mean from buzz and eyes side of things and i'm sure you've seen it we're starting to see a bit of a niche created in there is like particular people that are very very good in that role and they sometimes jump from event to event um, because they are they're not held for a, for a calendar because for financial reasons or whatever the reasons are of, of the event or organization but more importantly for you guys as rostify are you start do you see some of those people that do move around from organization to organization now that believe in your product and what you deliver and are able to be in some ways ambassadors for you to be able to open doors to new events and say hey there's this great program out there I use it all the time it's very good and it's part of the delivery and part of the service for for your volunteer program and here it is yeah yeah, I smile because um, it's absolutely the way and we see them all popping up. Yesterday uh, for in Qatar for the Asian football um, uh, 
Libby McGee, Libby we worked with in New Zealand years ago, years ago, and she's worked in so many different events. I didn't particularly realize, and they're all somewhat connected to Rostify. Um, Libby is one example, but it's not to say we've had any part of her journey. She's done that all herself, but it's, it is, uh, it's great to see people like that around the world. And, and, and conversely from the client side, uh, I think it was UEFA or, uh, FIFA, FIFA, I think they, they did like a massive market scan of on LinkedIn and everything of people that had used Rostify or they did a huge search. They shortlisted like 200 candidates so that they could find some system experts that did X, Y, and Z. Yes, it would be smart if we had a pool of all these volunteer managers and that's something we've always been meaning to do how many hours in a day, I suppose. But uh, it is great to see those people doing that role. Um, And what I, my biggest passion behind it, it's like these people are such takes a special person to be a volunteer manager, right? And a lot of heart and soul goes into it, a lot of invested energy into the volunteers. Um, and so what we love seeing is that they can actually be that passionate person compared to someone that is frustrated using spreadsheets going, oh my God, I'm not, not sleeping the night before because I don't know who's actually accepted my shifts and things. That's what we love about our work. Do you, do you remember how many volleys you had in uh, on Rostify in year one? Oh, mate, it would have been... <laughs> I don't know, 200. I don't know. I, I don't know. Early doors, <laughs> I can barely remember. Yeah. yeah. And how's it, I mean, in terms of that number, if you can divulge it, how's it grown in terms of how many volunteers or workforce people do you have on database now in terms of how the platform's grown? Yeah. Um, the guys conveniently did some stats the other day for some something, some work they were doing. Um, I think, we have over 2 million volunteers on the platform around the world and did, I think we've done something like 15 million volunteer hours through our platform. Wow, that's incredible. Um, across 26 countries and, um, yeah, so some pretty big statistics coming out because what we focus on and what we specialize on is the mass scale. We don't work with a lot of smaller customers and therefore it might go around to answering your earlier question about lots of event organizers that are quite small and niche in the way they operate. But we really do want to work with the largest volunteer and workforce paid workforce programs because that's what we specialize in. Yeah, great. And so you mentioned earlier, we'll go back to, to Spark events, which followed and sort of that, you know, that merger um, that happened and that transition happened. So event workforce and I guess into Rostify and now into Spark. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of, okay, how do you make a decision to go, mm, you know what, event workforce is, is not going to happen now and we're going to make it Spark, but we've got Rostify happening, but we still want to stay involved and to run both businesses in parallel. Um, yeah, it kind of got to the point where we realized that this Rostify thing could be something. And we had a choice to make was like, well, we need, if we're going to do it, we have to be all in. And Event Workforce was doing really well at the time. And importantly, we had such a great little team in Melbourne that were working on it. Um, and so we didn't want it to just die. You know what I mean? Like that was kind of the options it was kind of just like saying, well, we had a good run and now we're going to focus on something else, but we didn't want that to happen. And so that's where we sat down with Geordie yep. and we're like, well, we've got such aligned interests and passions and also what's so critical is sort of you know founders of business that you need to align personally with with geordie too and so we spent a lot of time together and we realized like this would make a lot more sense and be better for students and young people that there is a central place to go 
um, to get your first taste and experience in the industry and be able to stay in the same place to then get a contract role at the Australian Open or at the Formula One so that you can actually progress your career from there because casual opportunities is only so much. It's not going to get you your next job. Um, sure, in some cases, but let's give them the best chance. And so that's how it sort of started. And But it was a lot of care and a lot of thought over probably a, a full year of work with Geordie to make that happen. And I guess Spark, you know, in particular now is is effectively a, you know, a full-time staffing company, you know, for both large and small scale events and, and a valuable resource to the industry. How do you go about convincing, you know, particularly the large events like the Australian Open and the Formula One Grand Prix that, hey, you guys are the go-to guys for for casual staff um, rather than them having to do it uh, themselves? Which, which um, they did do yeah. and have now, yeah. Yeah, I guess come into the spark piece, but you know, is it and is it counterintuitive to what you do with Rostify? So it's like you know, large event. Hey, we've got a great platform over here where you can build your, you know, your staff management and and your workforce management system, or actually, you know what, outsource it over to our other company, and we'll just take care of the whole thing. Well, that was the dilemma of that event workforce group. That those weird couple of years there, Brad, in the middle, that we weren't really sure who we were. That certainly was the case. But now, like, for example, the Shane Open, they use Rostify for all their casuals and paid staff um, and ops crew and things. Um, but they also use Spark for all of their staff. So Geordie's got a couple of hundred staff a day yep. down there at the Australian mm-hmm. Open. So they can still work hand in hand. And there's a few other examples of that. But um, how do we get in front of them? Like, I still... It, comes back to I think what I said at the very start, like sitting with these organizers and saying the yeah, there's a real balance between like we as a company can do these things, but also like believe us and we will work with you, we'll be there with you. And I think that that personal relationship and the trust that you can have as an individual, it's not to be undersold how important that is. I think that's still a big part of it. And then clearly the track record that Spark has and Jordan, Dan, the guys have worked so hard to build up that really speaks for itself because as much as someone wants to work with you, maybe then if you don't have a track record, they're not going to do it. So it's so equally important, I think, but um, that's sort of how you do it. And in, in the end, after you get to a certain point, you can kind of refer and say, well, if they believe us and here, speak to them because they do the same thing you do. They're really happy. Have a chat to them because I don't need to sell you on anything. You need to go and speak to people yourself, which they're probably going to do anyway. But if you've got willing people to speak on your behalf, that's that's so much more important than anything you can ever say. Uh, well, I'm probably one of them. I've, I've always had awesome experiences with Spark. And you know, so you're doing a lot right, um, as you say. But what is the process like to recruit staff um, making sure that you deliver consistent standards to your clients. Yeah, the guys and and to I must say the guys are much closer to it for the Geordie and the guys are much closer to it than I am these days um in terms of the operational side of the business, but I know how much effort they put into um recruitment days so they'll send teams up to Sydney or to Queensland out of universities and and other areas and do recruitment campaigns, sit down with people, interview people, ask them what's important to them, why are they doing these sort of things to align. Uh and then from there really sort of not ranking systems in a sense, but wanting to understand who are, because in the system they use Rostify by coincidence or whatever, but you know, you're able to really um, 
group and segment and break down who the right staff are for right roles. Like activations, not everyone suits that. Um, early days, Shane, I remember being on the phone to people being like, oh, so are you bright and bubbly and you're ready to go out and have some fun? And the person would be like, oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and, but you were trying to talk them into it so that you could tick the box in your own mind that maybe that was, and this is very early days, but like speaking honestly, that's kind of, you were probably trying to convince people they were the right people uh, for your own headspace. But now Spark's the opposite where they've done all the DD, they've got, and their biggest problem is that they've got too many staff. Like they've got a lot in the pipe of people that want to work with them that they're able to, you know, recruit the very best people and get them into the best roles. And have you seen some of those people move on into the industry? I mean, again, you provide a platform, they start working casually. Has there been any real standouts that you remember you kind of go, wow, this is a great one, and they've gone on to bigger and better things in their own way by the, you guys providing that, you know, first foot in the door for them? Yeah, that's a fun fun part of it. It's not what you started out thinking you'd ever do or whatever. Um, I sound like an old man now as well, but um, – there's some some really fun stories, and in particular, almost the I reckon the best stories are always the one that you never meant to happen or shouldn't have happened. But like early doors, being like, "Oh, that bloke's like he's no good. He's never gonna do, he's never gonna do anything," and then keep showing up and going, "Hang on, like he's having a real crack here," and then realizing maybe he's just doing the wrong role. Okay, let's get him. Out. Oh wow, like he's gun at this stuff cool let's get him into this and then seeing them progress themselves and even in working outside of spark and everything and and then seeing them land a gig you're like whoa <laughs> this person's come a long way um and, and another really great example is a big we're starting to do a lot more with deacon um a lot of indian students and um people from outside australia um shana touched on like ability to take initiative and confidence and things other things that stand out on the event side that help you progress right if you if english isn't your first language or if you're in a new country that's so hard for you to do and so some a really great example is two guys mervin and sunny back in the day uh indian guys working casually with us um i spoke to merv last week and he was in dallas looking after the uh, the the cricket team over there and he was in abu dhabi a few months early managing the t20 campaign like he, he did all of this because early doors we gave him a chance to get involved in cricket and he used the, the work at Melbourne Stars on his resume to get into these jobs and roles. Um, and yeah, we're, I guess we're really proud of that, but also not, it's not on us. Like he did the hard work to get there and now he's made his own journey, which is brilliant. I think from the other side too, like, I don't know about you, Shane, but certainly from my experience as well, the fact that we get exposed, like as event organizers and producers and directors and stuff to, to the staff that are there that you might not be able to find, you know, it's hard to find good people. And all of a sudden you, you guys provide one or spark provide one and you go, geez, this is, this person's all right. So, and I mean, I can think of one in particular, you know, from 12 months ago that, you know, it was a last minute request of, you know, we had a hole and, um, I, to be honest, I can't remember the girl's name. I should remember, but, um, came in and went above and beyond in so many ways. It was a, you know, not even what we asked for. And it's like, geez, have a look at this. And sure enough, I do, I do know she's, uh, you know, working full time now and has gone on yep. to bigger and better things. With, and With Spark. With Spark. Yeah. And it's like, and that was her first foot in the door and she just loved it and away they went. And it's like, wow, there's some, it gives you confidence that there's still great people out there that are very yep. passionate about what they do. Um, and can provide a great resource and tool to to the industry. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's that's it, right? You give someone an, an opportunity. Yeah. Similar to our, if you've in a weird way look at it, like people shouldn't have given us tough mutter shouldn't have signed us, you know, but they gave us an opportunity yep. and we just took it and made sure we nailed it. And I think a lot of that messaging should be the same with all the spark young people coming through and and sports grad as well with the, the other company with the Geordie. Ben and yep. myself, Chris, we're all involved with now, all about young people developing their skills, their confidence, those sorts of things. You, if you get one shot, don't don't fuck it up. Yeah, Same just take it. Well, well talk, I've got another story I should say. This goes back a very long way, early, very early days, and talk about not taking an opportunity, but I had a, I can remember a, a young volunteer coming in and uh, fell asleep on their job that we found them in the garden bed because they were hungover from the night before, and I can tell you very quickly they were moved on and they never came back. Oh, You've uh, got to give these people a chance. Oh, oh they have one chance, but uh, <laughs> to their right. credit, you know, someone else showed up, but, uh, you know, again, you miss an opportunity and you talk about, you know, early doors and stuff. Can you tell us a bit about sports grad and, and what that now looks like? I mean, as if you haven't got enough on your plate, you're now taking on sports grad, and, but, again, it's another important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, um, it's really special. Um, and I just love the journey the guys are going on. Ruben and Ryan, the, the founders of the company, um, uh, in effect of like what Bennett and myself built and Chris Grant. Chris Grant's the technical guy I mentioned from yep. Super Spin Early Doors. Um, Is he still with you at Rostify? Sorry to cut you he's, so, Yeah, he's the, th- the three co-founders of Rostify, me, Bennett, and Chris ah. is the third, the technical guy. He built it, I sold it, and Bennett kept the ship together, basically. <laughs> love um, it. And so we've all stayed together and Geordie now as, as investors into, into sports grad um, because we saw the journey they were going on and thought um, we can really help, if nothing else, just like as a good sounding board to go like, because it's not easy, this stuff, right? It's not easy. It's so much easier to go and get a job somewhere else and earn a salary. And so if nothing else, just to support them through this journey that they're going through and help to guide them on different things about being like, yeah, we tried that. Don't do that. <laughs> Try this and whatever. So yeah, sports grad, sorry, this, the, what they do is it's really a community um, of young people wanting to progress themselves in sport. And they've got a global community now of people that join. Um, there's Discord channels. People can communicate, talk about upcoming interviews, resumes. There's lots of online training, learning. Um, there's lots. They're doing these meetups. There's one tonight, boys, in, in Melbourne, starting in 30 minutes. I, I well, won't let's be quick able to finish there. it up. We'll go. Yeah, no, no, no. no I'm, I'm not. I won't be there tonight, unfortunately. But they do lots of meetups where they bring people from the industry. You know, the head of sponsorship from Cricket Australia to come in and meet young people and talk about how they got started because you guys it's probably half the reason you're doing this podcast is like how similar people's worlds are and and especially if you see a young person that wants to have a crack you you'll give it to them you know yeah. but they've got to put themselves out there and i think that's what sports grade is about helping people to de- develop that confidence and um find their way because it's it's not easy and you've got to be able to um, meet some like-minded people that you know they're a bit nervous as well great let's get together let's go to an event together Cool. Is that and networking stuff important for you? And and the reason I ask that is I can remember the, the event workforce, probably the first one or if not the first, definitely the second networking a night and sort of meetup that you created way back then to sort of open up, you know, your staff to, to the industry as well. But obviously it's something you've continued on and how much do you value that in what you do? Well, it's, it's everything. You, 
without these little random interactions, leaving the networking event, walking to your car, you bump into someone and they go, oh, by the way, you know what? Someone's pulled out for tomorrow. You're in. That's that's the story of what event workforce and what our journey has been as a business is you just got to be in the right place at the right time. And if you keep putting yourself in all these different places, you're going to get lucky. And then once you get lucky, don't fall asleep on the job. <laughs> Get a chance and, and make the most of it and be um, the girl you mentioned that, that killed it and went above and beyond. And that's why these networking things are so great because you just never know who you're going to meet. And the biggest thing, if, if it's young people listening, is it's like it, people probably like the three of us here, we've all been there where you're nervous and you don't know, you're uncertain, you don't think there's a reason why anyone should want to have you on the team because there's a thousand other people like you that it, you, you sort of see through that and you see that they're trying. And I think that's a big thing and showing up and being there is, is half the ingredients, right? And so I think people that are smart enough or people that you want to work with in the future are those that aren't just looking for the ready-made perfect object coming out of university because that's not real. So I think it's just you got to put yourself in those positions to um, be able to be found, really. And coming back to your relationship with Bennett as well, um, you know, he's your cousin, a couple of years older, but nevertheless, you've gone down this pathway together. It could have been risky, you know, you, you, your family. And, I mean, you've come out of it the other side and you've done well. But, I mean, what, what tips or advice would you give to anyone else who's looking to start a business with partners or uh, or sorry, like business partners or family members or something like that. You know, do you have any advice as to what creates a good collaboration? Yeah, well, my wife now works in the business too, Shane. So, oh, wow, okay. it's even twenty-four-seven. It's all in. We're really yeah. pushing it. Um, uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't think there's an exact science to it, right? It's everyone's different. Um, ben and I are, are lucky that we get along so well. I think we have a, share a pretty similar sense of humor so we can often find a have a laugh too um but we also have different skill sets so we're not these two you know rams butting yeah. head all the time on the it's same important. idea yeah. i'm always trying to drag him in a certain direction or whatever if, especially early days and and you know push him probably out of his comfort zones and and he's probably painted the real picture of how to do things um and do them correctly and properly and, and structure things well and so we're fortunate, lucky more than anything that we've had that relationship. And Chris Grant, our developing solutions architect now, he built the thing from the very beginning, very similar. Like we classify ourselves really as family because of everything we've gone through. It's so, it's so important to get the right partners early. And I think just look for people with diverse skill sets than yourself, so like I touched on before. And then for family, Families over everything. Like if if there was risks or things there, I think we both would have been smart enough to call it or to do something because that's more important than any of this stuff. So I think, and with my wife now, that I've just <laughs> been smart enough to listen to her on everything she she often wants, and she's often more right than wrong with all these things. So I don't know. I think it's just being aware of the scenarios and and I think by running your own business, you learn to listen like you just learn that you're not always right um sometimes you have to be headstrong and you know bullet a gate and say we're going to do this no matter what but you also get humbled pretty quickly along the journey a lot yep. and so just not to ride the highs and lows so much 
Like we got some crappy news yesterday in the business for just a different scenario, but we've been there before. And so you, the sun comes up today and we go hard and try and find the next one. And I'm really happy and help. It's so good to have a partner that you can bounce off with that. If you're one person, like I've got friends that are sort of one man out or, or one girl, um, it's really hard because you you got to be able to vent some being like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. This This happened today. No one else, this is probably the hardest thing about starting your own business, no one else gets it. And if you start talking about it all the time, all your mates just tune out oh, and go, what are you yeah. talking about, mate? Like this is, I'm working nine to five as a teacher. I don't, this isn't real. I don't get why you're up at 11 p.m. But my best mate's a motorbike mechanic and a primary school teacher. These, these boys don't, they're not that interested in this space and that's fine. I love it in a sense. It's sort of pick your audience around you and yeah. sort of run your own race, I guess. Do you have any mentors yourself outside of business that you rely on to keep you grounded and keep you focused and help you with those decisions, even with business partners? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big thing early to realize where you're at is we didn't know, we knew nothing really. I mean, bluntly. Uh, so Marcel Berger, um, Mumu, uh, early days, he was the one that helped us early doors. We'd catch up with him. I don't know if it was every Wednesday or so. Um, and he really helped us from a just a business and process and getting things structured and, and sales and strategy. Like we, Marcel really helped us early doors. Matty Bissett um, is a really great friend and contact and, and Benny Muldoon and Tommy Mitchell, these guys that are around, around us, really helpful. And Matty Bissett more so with him running that technology business and, he was so good to have to just like the stress relief sometimes or the, he came, when we signed the Super Bowl, Shane, um, Maddie turned up in our office at 7.30 in the morning with a bottle of Verve and popped it and we drank <laughs> champagne. Like we, it's, that's, we he's no, my kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had no money, whatever, whatsoever. And, and, you know, Maddie coming around doing that sort of thing, it's, he, he sees the, the roller coaster and I guess he helps you realize the fun stuff. And then more recently, um, a guy called Steve Power. Steve um, reached out to us actually on LinkedIn randomly. Steve's a very successful um, guy that's built a couple of yeah, unicorn exit businesses. He's done very well for himself. Aussie guy living in America. Um, and we caught up with him every Wednesday, uh, every Wednesday morning for two or three years, me and Bennett with the three, the three of us who catch up, sometimes bloody crying over a Zoom call just to get through different scenarios or whatever, but you've got someone that's been there, done that and going, boys, like not the end of the world, like the sun will come up tomorrow. We'll get through that. And, and then celebrating the amazing fun things that we've done together as well. And Steve's now an investor in Rostify and a big supporter. So um, by all means, yes, I know today's podcast, we've talking, talked about our journey, but yeah, the very first thing, Mick Merriman, we would be nothing without Mick. Honestly, we would be nothing without having Mick Merriman support us um, early days. So you have to not be too naive to think you know all the answers. 100%. And what, what, what's important to you in development of your companies in the industry into the future? <sighs> Just be proud of the place you work because it's like, kind of like you spend so much time at work, right? And at Rostify, like our, our team work really hard and, and probably harder than most other places that they'd work because we're scaling, we're growing. And 
unfortunate part of, and probably the thing people don't talk about much is that there's a bit of churn for sure as you scale and grow your company because not everyone is signs up for the same journey you are. And not to be naive that as a founder, everyone cares as much as you do as yeah. well. And so yep. you've got to be hyper aware of that. But to answer your question, I think it's like, you just want to be really proud of the work you do as a business. Uh, you want to be really proud of the people that work in your company and look after them so well because they are, at the, I think there's nearly 40 of us now at Rostify around the world, but it's like we're nothing without these people. And if they don't, if they're not being looked after or whatever, they're smart people, they'll go somewhere else. And so I don't know, I think that's it. Just be proud of your efforts and, and look after your team. Thing that they're my biggest things and so this is the first time you and i have actually met before but yeah. you already strike me as someone who you don't overthink things too much am i right in saying yeah i think that's probably f there's an element i certainly do in some parts I feel <laughs> well, but i very sort of probably instinctual and open to trying something and learning from it and failing fast and going shit that didn't work out there's not too much pride on the line with these things is mm. my simple summary and I think, you know, you talk about people again, and it's such a common trait, obviously, in what you do day to day, but how do you balance, or, or how do you see the balance between people and technology in events specifically evolving, moving forward, given the fact you've got a technology company and you deal with people and we're seeing such a transition in society at the moment? Well, it's an interesting one. Early days of Rostify, people be like, oh, we don't want a platform because we want this to be very personal, right? From a volunteer manager to all their people. Like, I want to know John's birthday. I want to pop around to his house and give him, it's like, I, you know, respect. But at the same time, if you're trying to do this with thousands of people, you're just doing yourself and them a disservice. Like you have to be able to scale a lot of this automation and comms and everything. So you, in order to give volunteers a great experience and a personalized experience, you have to use technology to do so because a system enables people to know what's going on. Because the biggest challenge like we it. see in, in volunteer drop-off is, is uh, when volunteers don't know where they stand. They apply yeah, yeah. and then they hope to hear something and then they don't and then they've found something else. That. So I think the two and two, you have to respect your volunteers by enabling a system to communicate regularly and for them to find information. And that the last point I'd say in it, Brad, is um, almost conveniently, is where we're actually launching really a world first, a mobile app um, called the Rostify Community in Q1 next year. We're launching it up in Brisbane. Um, and that's a single identity for a volunteer. And so if I'm a volunteer with the Brisbane Marathon, I can also look at my app and see opportunities with Cancer Council Queensland or Oz Harvest or Meals on Wheels. So that volunteers now are more empowered to find opportunities under a single identity that will track all of their volunteerism and also help organizations on the other side post opportunities to a connected marketplace of engaged volunteers. So we're launching that soon and that's the future of volunteering it's not going backwards it has to be in the palm of your hand it has to be personalized it has to be short and sharp if you want it to be it has to be related to your passions and your interests if you want it to be it can't it can no longer be expressing in interest and hoping to hear back and not hearing back and then going to do something else that's dead fascinating and incredible work
Yeah. Hey, we've got to the stage, mate, uh, we like to call uh, Buzz's Rapid Fire Questions, as we do every week. Uh, so I like to shut up for a minute and hand over to the big man and buckle into the uh, the couch there or wherever you're sitting, and uh, and yes. it's over to him, and uh, I look forward to seeing the other side of this one. All right, yeah. sh- short and sharp. What's been your favourite casual job from the past? Colour run, most fun. The what? Oh, the, oh, the yeah, okay. Colour run ops. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Great answer. Um, what do you do to chill and switch off? I've now got a four-year-old daughter and a 10-month-old son, and so spending time with them. So grateful for every moment I have with them because they're never going to be this little again. I just love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what event do you recommend the most to volunteer at for those looking to break into the industry? <laughs> There's so many options, right? Um I guess trying to, be, trying to pick a favorite client. I know. No, no, no. no. I, I would bigger the better because then you get hooked and you go, whoa, that was awesome. Yeah, and you like have a Grand Prix or, yeah. Yeah. Grand Prix is a great example, probably, where you can find yourself in a random position where you get to meet someone who says, come to the next one. Do that over something smaller if you can so that you expose yourself to a bigger opportunity. Yep. No, I love it. Uh, most recommended place in the world to visit. Uh, lots of good spots, but I love um, love going to Switzerland. Yeah, we've got a lot of great customers there and it's a beautiful country. That's not what I was expecting, but yeah, I've been to Switzerland. It's awesome there. Yep. Um, and who's been your biggest inspiration? Uh, that's hard. I'm, you know what? Probably those three sort of mentors I mentioned in a sense of people that have been there through everything. Um, I'd probably say Bennett and Chris, co-founders, uh, and Geordie as well, and Rubes and Ryan, really, like they, this group of us now inspiring each other, I think. And then my family, like, you know, we're doing this for your family and it's hard stuff, right? You're away a lot. I'm traveling overseas a lot. You got like, it's got to be worth it, you know? If it wasn't worth it or if you weren't proud of it, you wouldn't do it. So that's a big one. And how many frequent fly points do you have? Mate, I none. Like, <laughs> I was, we always just try flying the cheapest, shittiest airlines, whatever, forever. So it's a mixed bag. We'd have a lot on a lot of them. Is my I, simple I, summary. I love the reference to Tiger before. That was great because we oh, can yeah. all we've all got memories of Tiger, right? Absolutely, mate. Yep. Yeah. Now, well played. Keeping uh, keeping your feet on the ground there. I love it. Hey, a tradition we've started uh, this season on an event for life, and that is we've asked the previous guest to leave the next guest a question without knowing who they are. So today's question for you, what was the nicest thing anyone in the industry has ever done for you without you having to ask? Ah, that's really good. That's really nice. Um, It's not a single moment. It would be all of the friends in the industry or customers that referred us and gave us a leg up and said, we'll give you a shot. You know what, if I had to answer it, It'd be someone like, um, is a distinct moment. And this is really weird, but when I, when I first started events, that first Melbourne marathon, I was, uh, sorry, my second one. So I'd done my first one in a kind of crappy role, whatever. Second one, I finally got the gig as I was a finish line manager or the, the, the finish shoot manager. And I slept through my alarm. I, could, I was heartbroken. I woke up, couldn't believe it. And called Tommy Mitchell, uh, who was the sort of manager at the time. And he's like, mate, don't stress, take it easy, don't speed, just get here safe and we'll see you soon. I distinctly remember that moment forever, just about 
the being calm under pressure and looking after your people. And I just, that moment always stood out to me. Beautiful. Yeah. Just look, yeah, just be nice, right? Yeah. yeah. Just be nice. Yeah. You can, yeah. you can be a good human. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. I just thought it was such a, such an interesting one because if he, if he baked me and said, mate, you're never coming back to an event again. I don't know if I would have continued doing this stuff, but someone took the time to care. And like in that moment when he would have been freaking out himself and whatever, busy, 4am in the morning of Melbourne Marathon, you know, I, I would have somewhat understood if he freaked out too, but um, being calm under pressure and, and caring for someone, I just thought that was a distinct moment that was pretty special. Well, it's all about moments and uh, and taking the opportunities when they present themselves and it's something you've certainly done over your career so far. Uh, we look forward to, to seeing what comes next in the in the world of Rostify and Shannon Gove and, and Spark Event Group and the app, yeah, absolutely. Yep. But uh, to you and to the rest of the guys, you know that team and that support network you've got around you. It's uh, it's certainly a team effort, um, and that doesn't go unnoticed. And uh, but most importantly, congratulations. Um, it's it's an amazing journey and of hard work and passion and staying focused. And uh, we thank you for your time today on Event for Life, and um, we really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to seeing what's coming next. Yeah, thank you, boys. And to you guys too, right? You guys have, you know, you are helping the industry so much in everything you guys have done forever. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be on here with you today. And thanks for the, thanks for the time. No worries. Good to share a beer too. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah good work, boys. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of An Eventful Life. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. It makes a huge difference to us. And don't forget, you can also find us on our new YouTube channel. This show is for you, our listeners. Our aim is to bring you the most in-depth conversations and life experiences from the event industry. So if you have any feedback, suggestions on guests you would like us to interview on the show, please reach out to us through our social media channels. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. See you next time on An Event for Life.